Cage.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And we are back for another MCU.html, and this time, it's Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah. Precious, precious Tom Holland, I would love to stand under your umbrella. And (laughs) I think this was probably my favorite iteration of Spider-Man ever, bar none. Same for me, no question. There's things I've liked about previous Spider-Men. I think Tobey Maguire did a good nerd. I think Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man was cool. But neither of them really found a balance between the two. I appreciate everything you're saying there. I always think of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man with the same impression Tobey Maguire does his Dustin Diamond and his Scrumtralescent. I always see that as his Spider-Man. And that's unfortunate because I want to like his Spider-Man. But at the end of the day, he's kind of always got that, well, MJ, if... We can't be together, then that's for the best kind of performance. You know what? Yeah, now that you're saying it and I'm looking at it, it is sort of a caricature of what a nerd would be, which I guess at the time when you're thinking about what my perception of Spider-Man was being the 90s cartoon, we were still really into caricatures in the 90s. We're trying to get over that shit. Andrew Garfield was a really fun reinterpretation, but... It was only five years later, and we all still had the burning sensation of Spider-Man 3 on our every parts of us. That was a really rough stretch. You had Spider-Man 3, you had X-Men 3 The Last Stand, you had Wolverine Origins. It was a tough time to like Marvel superhero movies. Well, it's actually a really interesting journey, Tobey Maguire to Tom Holland, and how the Amazing Spider-Man franchise just sort of fell apart. I did a lot of reading on it when looking into this episode, and found some fascinating stuff. I look forward to talking about that. We also, I think, as you mentioned, as a kind of generation that grew up on Spider-Man, were very influenced by the number of animated series for Spider-Man that have been produced. There's that classic one that's, you know, Prince Eric's voice as Spider-Man, and he's all very, Whoa, you guys, I'm Peter Parker, and it's hard being a college student and also a reporter and funny and sometimes a spider. Yeah, with the decrepit old-looking Aunt May. Kingpin, who I think was Grimace in a Kingpin suit. Yes, that Kingpin is so iconic, for real. And Ed Asner as J. Jonah Jameson, giving one of the other iconic performances as J. Jonah, I feel. A lot of people go to J.K. Simmons, but Ed Asner was great. I feel like J.K. Simmons based his entire performance on Ed Asner's take, and it was such a great take. It's super iconic, and I appreciate both of them. Spider-Man is such an iconic part of our childhood in so many ways, whether it's the Tobey Maguire movies, the animated series, or even the Andrew Garfield reboot from earlier this decade. I think the Tobey Maguire series is kind of silly, kind of fun, lighthearted, and- It was a good counterpoint to the X-Men franchise, which is a little more serious and grown up for the time. Yeah, you know, the strangest things that happen in Spider-Man are all sort of dictated by things like getting bitten by a spider, 
and a dude who thinks he's an octopus. But in X-Men, they did weird things, like Magneto melted a guy. It was just a very different franchise. So Spider-Man comes in, and it's silly, and it's fun, and then the Andrew Garfield franchise tries to be more aware of the fact that it's in an Avengers era, and it needs to step up its game. But really, I don't feel like the world needed a Spider-Man reboot by the point they rebooted it. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it felt like they were just trying to keep the spider train running rather than make good art. Not that it was bad. I enjoyed it. I think it was trying to toe the line between the more lighthearted but still serious Marvel and the more grim dark with the occasional bits of comedy DC. And it's a really hard thing to juggle because Spider-Man as a character is a really specific story. Batman's story is a story about an adult. It's not hard for us to see Batman as an adult. The X-Men started as teenagers, and they grew into 20-somethings, and now, sure, Scott Summers is like a 30-something. I'll accept that. Okay. But I don't think we're going to naturally see Scott Summers become like a 50-something. And that causes weird problems like age compression because they want the newest batch of teenagers always to now be old enough to fight, but they don't want to make the oldest batch of teenagers too old now. So you get this weird time dilation and compression on everybody's ages. And I think Spider-Man is permanently stuck as a teenager in the cultural vernacular, but the character has tried to grow and he's been married and his marriage has disappeared and then he's married again and it disappears again. And this is kind of the cycle that these characters that were given to us as teenagers that people want to see as adults fall into. So Spider-Man, every time they try and advance him and grow him up, someone's going to try and pull him right back to teenage reset. And I think the problem with that was they tried to do a new Spider-Man 1 10 years after Spider-Man 1. I think the first thing that makes Homecoming succeed is that Homecoming does not feel like the first Spider-Man movie. Civil War started with Spider-Man in a way that was like, you know the backstory. We don't have to tell you. Yeah, and I think what you're saying really ties into something I realized as I was reading about these films. I was looking into the ages of the actors who were playing Spider-Man at the time, and Tobey Maguire was 26 when he started playing Spidey. He was 26 to 31 in that franchise, and Andrew Garfield was 28 when he started playing Spider-Man. He was 28 to 30. Meanwhile, Tom Holland was 18 or 19 on the set of Civil War. Like, they really, really, really wanted to give us teen Spider-Man in a way that we hadn't seen before. In the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man, we saw him graduate high school toward the very beginning of that film. We literally get nothing of Peter Parker as a teenager from that franchise. In The Amazing Spider-Man, he graduates high school at the beginning of the second film. Again, we get nothing of Peter Parker being a teenager. I honestly don't know when they plan on graduating the MCU's Peter Parker, but Tom Holland himself is still at least four years younger than either of the Spider-Men from the previous franchises right now. They have plenty of time to catch up to how old those actors were, and I'm sure tons of story material they can mine to keep this franchise going. I love everything you just said, so much so that I think it's time to roll into that BTS that we love to do here on MCU. Kevo, tell me, how did they finally get around to making this movie? It wasn't supposed to exist. Now it exists. How did this happen? Spider-Man, Spider-Man, the 
just whatever a spider can. What a long and winding journey it is. I don't know who of our listeners will be aware of what having to do with the Spider-Man franchise, but some of you may already be aware there was supposed to be a Spider-Man 4 with Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire attached, and it entered development, like, back in 2007. At a certain point, a fourth became a potential fifth and sixth, which would have been, like, a two-part movie. There were talks about Bruce Campbell appearing as Mysterio, John Malkovich appearing as Vulture, Anne Hathaway appearing as Felicia Hardy, pre-Catwoman, possibly not as Black Cat, but rather a new super-powered figure called the Vultress. Go figure. The film was given a May 2011 release date, but disagreements and timing led Sam Raimi to withdraw because he didn't feel he could meet the pressure of that deadline. And after he was super unhappy with Spider-Man 3, you know, like the rest of us, he just didn't want to make a bad Spider-Man movie just to make it. And the same month as that announcement, in January of 2010, Columbia Pictures and Marvel Studios announced they would reboot the franchise with a new cast, which led to The Amazing Spider-Man. It's also really interesting that this franchise ended in 2007, and the next wave of superhero movies we got were things like the MCU and also Nolan's Batman trilogy which is primarily referred to as the Nolan Batman trilogy, not the Christian Bale Batman trilogy. I wonder how it plays into how we look at Spider-Man, that it's remembered as the Tobey Maguire trilogy, not the Sam Raimi trilogy. Yeah, especially knowing that the next director of Spider-Man, his last name is literally Webb, W-E-B-B. Why don't we call those the Spider-Man Web films? That's just right fucking there. And again, we call this the... Tom Holland era, or the MCU era. I think it's because Spider-Man the character is still definitive in a way that Batman had to evolve past. We've seen more iterations of Batman than we've seen of Spider-Man, I think. Batman has to be dictated by who's iterating, while Spider-Man can still be dictated by the iteration. Does that make any sense? I think it does. And you know, I liked the Andrew Garfield iteration, so I was really sad to see it go. But as I looked into this, I really understood why that franchise sort of fell apart. It's sad because they were really behind it at first. Before The Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out, they announced a third coming out in 2016, a fourth in 2018, and spinoff films with Sinister Six and Venom. And then the movie came out and it did not earn back its budget domestically. And it didn't derail the Spider-Verse. A lot of the films that they had pitched as spinoffs, like Sinister Six, Venom we all saw happened. They're still trying to make Spider-Man work as an overall franchise. But um, especially after the November 2014 Sony Pictures Entertainment hack revealed that Sony had been in talks both with Sam Raimi to reboot the franchise and with Marvel Studios about loaning Spider-Man for Cap Civil War and beyond. It was pretty clear that Amazing Spider-Man was dead in the water, and talks reopened between Marvel and Sony, and we got Spider-Man in Civil War. It ultimately reshaped the Marvel Cinematic Universe to have Spider-Man. It's really great to hear the directors and writers say that, oh, there was never a version without Spider-Man, because I can't imagine Infinity War without certain moments of sadness and i think 
Tony Stark's growth in the movie we're going to discuss today is nearly somehow as essential to his story as his trilogy is. And Spider-Man, as we've already pointed to, is such an iconic character, and for as great as the other characters they have introduced in Phase 3 are, Doc Strange, Black Panther, you know, all these great concepts that they have done, we really needed someone that everyone on the planet recognizes immediately uh, to be returned to the fold, and Spider-Man is such an iconic figure. You know, I wonder if there had been the potential at some point for Andrew Garfield to be the one to cross over. I remember back when Avengers was still in production, there was talks about they were trying to put the Oscorp building in the New York City skyline, or possibly the reverse. They were trying to put the Avengers Tower in the city skyline of Spider-Man, try to like give a nod to each other. And I wonder if that had been the direction they were going. But I think once they saw the numbers, both of the amazing Spider-Man films cost more than either of the first two Tobey Maguire films. And yet they both made substantially less domestically and worldwide than any Tobey Maguire film. Oddly enough, the highest grossing Spider-Man film is still Spider-Man 3, just barely above Homecoming. That upsets me. And it's by such a small amount of money at this point. They're both frighteningly close to $900 million and about Seriously, $10 million separates them? That's a good weekend for one of these movies. It is, but here's the thing, too. Spider-Man 3 cost $258 million, whereas Spider-Man Homecoming cost $175 million. It is literally the second cheapest Spider-Man movie after the first one in 2002. So it immediately proved that Sony and Marvel made the right choice by rebooting the franchise. I also think that the reboot of the franchise allowed Venom to be a hit. I could see that. I feel like if Venom had tried to come out in the Garfield era, we all would have had nightmarish flashes of Topher Grace. But by the grace of Marvel, we were able to imagine an entirely new take on the Spider-Verse. I also wonder if Tom Holland's genuine lovability is part of where Into the Spider-Verse got so much anticipation. And you will be able to check us out on an Into the Spider-Verse episode over with the guys who run this motherfucker. And I'm very excited to do that with Joey and Mike. Yeah, I'm really excited. I love crossovers. I guess that's all there is to say about that long and winding road. Now I might as well just talk about the uh, people who made this. The cinematographer is Salvatore Totino. He did a lot of music video work in the 90s. He did the music videos for Spoon Man, Lightning Crashes, What's the Frequency, Kenneth? Secret Garden, and Fake Plastic Trees, among many others. I am so many... This guy is responsible for everything hipsters think. Well, and then his first major film was Any Given Sunday in 1999. Okay. He's a frequent collaborator with director Ron Howard, having done Cinderella Man, Da Vinci Code, and Frost Nixon, amongst others. And he did last year's breakout Netflix hit, Bird Box. I don't even know what to say to that. I haven't seen Bird Box yet, right? But I've read so much about this movie, I don't know that I want to see it now. I want to imagine my relationship with Bird Box is like their relationship with the monster. If you just keep your eyes covered and keep running, you're fine. So that's how my... I'm Bird Boxing Bird Box, and it's turning out really well for me. Bird Box, the Bird Box, the Bird Box. I get it. Returning to the MCU again as a composer is Michael Giacchino. Once again, the 
Bug Guys are not composed by the same composer. This is the second Bug Guy and the Magic Guy, which I just realized one of the big joke moments from the Avengers Infinity War trailer was that exchange between Doctor Strange and Peter, where he says, oh, we're using our made-up names, and they share a composer. That's kind of cute for me. And then this was directed by director John Watts. This dude was so determined to be the director of the film that he admitted he bothered Marvel by sending them clips of a fake trailer he made for a Spider-Man movie and wanted to stand out so bad in the field that he decided to get a Spider-Man tattoo on his chest. But hey, all of that worked because it got him the job and you can't really blame him for trying to use that method to get noticed because his first major job was getting noticed by Eli Roth after making a fake trailer for a horror film about a killer clown and putting it on YouTube. The guy contacted John Watts and offered to produce a feature version of that movie. Holy crap. That's incredible, and good for him. Yeah, his major credits include that and the 2015 road horror film Cop Car starring Kevin Bacon. I had never seen it. I vaguely remember hearing about it. It's weird. If you want to read about it, you can. I'd never even heard of it. But that's really it. That's really all he had to his name. In fact, one periodical described him as the indie director with only two low-budget film credits to his name, and John Watts himself is quoted as saying, I'm not really sure how I got this job. It seems like a lot of new blood got positions in the MCU by just, like, hammering down the door. And, hey, that takes ambition, man. Good for them. Yeah, after getting the job, he was able to read the script for Civil War, talk to the Russos, get a sense of Spider-Man's scenes and what they were doing there with him. So I'm, I'm sure that's probably part of what inspired the cell phone documentary at the top of this film was probably John Watts' own experience. And I love that read, and I can't wait to talk about that segment because I do feel like this movie was maybe a little too long, but it had so many great segments, and we're going to get into it. Okay, back to you. Well, now I get into screenwriter. It literally took a team of seven dwarfs to write this movie. At least seven different men were involved in writing the script for this film. And that really does play into my statement about how it feels like several different films. Yeah, and I hear what you're saying with that. So the script itself was written by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly. John Francis Daly being the dude from Bones and Freaks and Geeks. It's like when I found out that Danny Strong created Empire. You just never know where these people are going to pop back up. Yeah, and what sort of wild careers that they're going to end up having. They were hired to write the screenplay after losing the directing gig. They're a team whose first major film collaboration was Horrible Bosses with another co-writer. Then they wrote The Incredible Burt Wonderstone with several co-writers. They wrote Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2 with another co-writer. Are you starting to see a pattern here? It's interesting that these guys are able to get consistent work despite needing so many co-writers and rewrites because it means they must still have something that these movies need especially because their names aren't being removed by additional writers their contributions are remaining in by the wga's rulings so they're still at least 51 percent of the script in some capacity yeah these guys are really interesting dudes because like I also read they co-directed the movie Game Night and claim to have done heavy rewrites that they are uncredited for. And then just the other day, you were telling me that there's some drama involved in the Flash movie that they're currently directing. Evidently, they're trying to do a lighthearted and fun movie. 
and Ezra Miller is looking to do a heavier, darker movie, and DC has given Ezra Miller rewrite power along with comic god Grant Morrison. Evidently, everyone's unhappy with everyone else, but what I find most interesting about that is this continues a pretty long line of superhero actors getting to rewrite their own films. Whether it's Paul Rudd getting to do rewrites on both Ant-Man films or Ed Norton rewriting himself right out of Hulk, there is a long history of contributions from the cast. Think about the nature of Iron Man and the ad-libbed dialogue. There is a long history in the Marvel Cinematic Universe of actors helping shape the narrative. And so it's not too bizarre that I guess that would happen over in the DC side of things. But it is strange to hear that this team who came up with this dream film, Spider-Man Homecoming, that finally put the Spider-Man franchise back where it was supposed to be, would have trouble keeping control of a lighthearted tone on their DC project. Many people do see Wally West and Kyle Rayner as kind of DC alternatives to Spider-Man. They're younger, they're fun, they're high energy. So it's just a little surprising to hear that they may not get their way or could even ultimately walk away from the project. Yeah, I don't know. They are not involved, as far as I've read in the writing of the next Spider-Man film, at least. They wrote the first script for this one. It was then given a pass by John Watts and his writing partner, Christopher Ford, who co-wrote his two major features before this one with him. And then it was given another pass after that by co-writers Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, who will be the writers of the upcoming Spider-Man Far From Home. They didn't really have any major feature work before Spider-Man Homecoming. They are, again shockingly prolific community writers, or at least one of them is. Eric Summers only wrote one episode, The Ass Crack Bandit won in season five. Chris McKenna wrote ten episodes, many of which are huge fan favorites, including Paradigms of Human Memory, Remedial Chaos Theory, and the season five and six premieres, and co-writing the series finale with Dan Harmon. Their other feature film work came out the same year as this one, including the Lego Batman movie and Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. I think it's really interesting because you're making a case for how many people here, while having great ability, were new to having great responsibility. And it's almost like they decided they needed a really strong freshman class to make a movie about a strong freshman hero. And I wonder if some of that wide-eyed optimism is what gave Spider-Man Homecoming some of its I don't want to say like lighthearted whimsy, but yeah, Spider-Man Homecoming captured that sort of magic that Mika's We Are Golden has, that elevated sense of joy. I hear what you're saying. I really agree with what you're saying. And I love that you call it freshman class because it really is a class or a pool of writers. Chris McKenna and Eric Summers also wrote the first draft of the Ant-Man and the Wasp script. And even after their pass on this one, uncredited rewrites were done by Drew Pierce, who had been the co-writer of Iron Man 3. So there's a lot of crossover between writers on this whole franchise overall. It's really amazing what this pool of people they try to keep it down to are able to generate. You think about the fact that Iron Man only came out in 2008, 
and 11 years later, we're staring down the barrel of 22 movies ready to be completed with one more film. It's just unreal. And yet here we are. So I think this is that moment from the BTS to the what actually happened to the, to the SMH Spider-Man Homecoming. I was like, no, it should be SMHM. SMHM. Sure, if you like. Yeah, so to the SMHM. In the chill of night at the scene of a crime. So we open on a familiar site from a previous film, the decimation of an iconic Manhattan landmark, the train station, and the cleanup crew being led by Batman. Yeah. You know, Michael Keaton is one of those actors. The entire time he's up on the stage, I just keep being like, say his name three times. Vulture, Vulture, Vulture! And he does really give an amazing and distinctive performance here. I don't ever feel like I had to suspend that it was Michael Keaton. But he's still Michael Keaton the way Rene Russo was Rene Russo. The way Anthony Hopkins was Anthony Hopkins. Yes, but everybody but Anthony Hopkins hisses decidedly less. Just a little bit. I like that there were music cues right away in this film when we saw the little kids drawing of the Avengers. That was cute. I also always forget that Logan Marshall Green is in this movie. A lot of people know him from Prometheus, but I know him as Ryan's older brother, Trey, from the OC. It's also kind of funny because I too know him as both of those characters. And I was kind of like, his name got very little attention in those end credits. Interesting, 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 interesting. I'm just going to say it because Gwyneth Paltrow getting fourth billing for less than 60 seconds of screen time is genuinely one of the funniest experiences of my life. Yeah, I was going to bring it up when we came to it in the end. I literally wrote down, Gwyneth Paltrow got fourth billing on this movie. It's Tom Holland, Michael Keaton, Jon Favreau, Gwyneth Paltrow, Zendaya. You know me, so I counted. It was less than 60 seconds that she is in this movie, and it's a wonderful 60 seconds. It was delightful to see her here, and I want more of that in the MCU. But for fourth billing? It's at least better treatment of their actresses as actresses in this franchise have been given the short stake as recently as the Avengers Endgame poster. Yeah, true. Good point. Good framing. Good framing of that. You know, I I constantly forget that they tried to do a, a low-key Sinister Six in this film as well. I don't know how many casual viewers even got that that was what we were seeing, the fact that Logan Marshall Green's character is supposed to be the shocker. I, I think they even like make fun of calling him that at one point. We're so used to seeing very on-the-nose villains. The first Green Goblin from the Tobey Maguire film was, oh boy, that was a Green Goblin for sure. He was a Happy Meal toy. Absolutely. And I think what we see here is a more sinister take on the Sinister Six. I love it. I think it's really cool. I love that one of them is Tinkerer. I think it's all really great. And I also love the next opening sequence. I genuinely love the flashback to Civil War and everything going on with Peter coming into being Spider-Man under Iron Man's leadership. And it's such a fascinating take on the presentation of those ideas. It really makes it seem like Tom Holland really might have been whirlwinded into Civil War because he's so genuine with so much of this wide-eyed, amazed spider stuff. 
But it never gets annoying sometimes, you know, because all teenagers are annoying at different times, but then again, so are adults. I don't think it ever gets obnoxious, I guess, is more what I mean. It's never too much for me. But his wide-eyed innocence is so genuine, and it's it's so perfectly executed. You know, when he's saying, no one exactly told me why I'm Berlin. Peter, you're 15 and you got on a plane with these people. Are you serious? It's really endearing. It really helps us to immediately gain affection for his iteration of Spider-Man. The opening does leave me with some questions, though. Like, so I guess that scene of Tony dropping Peter off comes immediately after he was abandoned in Siberia by Captain America. And he's just, like, joshing around and making inappropriate comments about Peter's aunt, which we'll come back to. And I guess you could say that he is specifically in a very troubled state of mind after everything that just happened, but really, really think about it. Unless he left Peter in Berlin for an uncomfortable amount of time, that has to have happened right on top of each other. I think part of what works for Tony Stark is... Even if he is shattered, we expect him to seem cool. We commented a number of times that we thought that he was so ruffled in Civil War was not just, like, not our thing, but decidedly out of character for who they'd created Tony Stark to be. Hearing him call some half-man like Thunderbolt, sir, it was just so not Tony. So I'm kind of like, okay, fine. The MCU has always been masters of fudging with the timeline here and there. So fine, fine, fine. I think there's also something to be said for the fact that we are going from seeing Tony in a Cap film to seeing Tony in a Spidey film, and not only the different lens that we would naturally be looking at Tony through in those different characters' perspectives, but also the different ways that Tony would behave to these two characters. He would be a lot more vulnerable around Cap because he sees Cap more as an equal and a confidant after everything that they have been through as fellow heroes and soldiers, whereas to Peter, he's a father figure, he is a hero figure, he needs to look cool in front of Peter. I think that's a really reasonable read, and I think framing it like that, a lot of Tony's actions in this film come off caring, not just angry, and that is a good lens to keep in mind when looking at this film. Ultimately, I think the payoff of all of this ending with two months later and Peter's waiting for Tony to call him. I think that is the payoff this sequence needs because the sequence is so fantastical and it makes everything seem so big and so amazing from the get-go. Kevo, were there any other moments in that flashback to Civil War that made this work for you? As the guy who kind of likes Spider-Man more than me, no lie, what helped make this more a Spider-Man movie that you connected with? You know, I'm not sure if it is what helped me connect with it, but I really loved how street-level they kept him for a blockbuster universe where we have, you know, things like Sokovia being dropped and the attack in Lagos, and both of those things are mentioned in this film in the background. There's these major superhero events going on all around the world, but they really did a good job of keeping Spider-Man and Peter more grounded which, you know, it kind of has to be. He's just like a 16-year-old kid. And that is something we talked about in Civil War as well, that there's a lot of irresponsible double standard Tony is applying to mentoring Spider-Man that he seems to callously look past when he's addressing Cap and dealing with his choices. Yeah. So 
I just think altogether, this is a really important piece of the Tony Stark puzzle as much as it's an important piece of the Peter Parker puzzle. Oh, something that I do think helped bring this movie together for me, though, is the way that happy was our window into Tony for most of it. We only see Peter and Tony face to face, like, literally three times in this entire movie. They have three face to face conversations and one phone call. That's all that Robert Downey Jr. appears in. John Favreau really helped pick up the slack of that, and I really enjoyed he's not happy about the Peter situation in the beginning of the film, and then by the end, he really earns his respect by proving himself as a hero. It's really cute to see someone who is not quite at Avengers level, but really technically still above Peter, coming to approve of him as well. Yeah, it kind of made me think of Happy as a Nick Fury, or a Coulson, or a Maria Hill. An accessory to the superhero dumb that is a hero in their own regard. I feel like Happy even showed growth and development and kindness. Occasionally he was difficult, absolutely, but it's got to take a really difficult man to be Tony Stark's assistant in all of the ways that Happy is his assistant. It's true. It's true. So yeah, early on we get a bunch of Peter on patrol. Before that, we unfortunately get the obvious and very specific confirmation of Peter Parker, heterosexual, at about 12 minutes into this film. Something I think that was really cool, interesting, specific, and significant is that Peter and Liz do not kiss in this film. Most of Peter's actions and sometimes creepy leering are because of Liz in this movie, but that relationship is never sealed with a kiss, and I think that was a very interesting choice to make for the teen high school Marvel hero film. I think it was the responsible choice to make in terms of a storytelling narrative. People become unduly hung up on the moments you choose to show. The moments you talk about don't matter as much as the moments you show. So let's say he does wind up with MJ. You can tell us that he and MJ are together every minute between the first and second movie and they spend all their time together but everyone's going to still say, oh, but he kissed Liz in the first movie, so that's what I want to see again. And I think that sort of mindset, thinking, okay, ultimately, what direction is the franchise going to go? Is he really going to end up with Liz? So does he need to kiss her in the first movie? No. It was responsible heterosexualizing. And I really appreciate that. A lot of this movie tried to figure out the balance. I, you know, I know that they were inspired by a lot of coming-of-age movies from the late 80s and 90s, Can't Buy Me Love, Say Anything, Almost Famous, were some of John Watts' favorite films from that genre, and so he was inspired by those sorts of things. But that was back when there was still a lot of, like, uncomfortable and irresponsible shit that I think these writers didn't quite work out of their systems. I don't like that every single man in this film sexualizes Widow Mae Parker. Just because she's, like kind of younger and super hot now, which they also made a very interesting specific choice of dressing her kind of frumpy in most of the movie. I'm not trying to like say she looks bad, but she does kind of always dress like it's laundry day. She's wearing like high-waisted jeans and really big round glasses. I don't have a problem with it. I think wear whatever you want to wear. I'm surprised with how much they had male characters sexualize her. She didn't dress more provocatively. And I think that's, again, responsible heterosexualizing. She is an older woman. She doesn't dress in any way that is trying to accentuate her sexuality. 
She's just beautiful and competent and confident and strong, and people are drawn to that. I think this movie did a lot of things very correctly. I do jump in that Peter's leering early on in the film makes me very uncomfortable, and I'm really glad you brought that up because we had to bring it up in Excess for Podcast as well. Sometimes Peter Parker does gross things like kisses Jean Grey to basically cuck Scott and Warren in Marvel Team Up. Here, they really found a better balance using just leering, and I appreciate that. And I wonder if having May Parker sexualized in front of him so frequently is, in the end, part of what they're trying to show, that Peter needs to make the connection between what he's doing with Liz is a lot like what's happening in front of him to his own aunt, and that's not appropriate. We see in a clip from the Far From Home trailer that Peter tells MJ she looks really beautiful, and she kind of digs in on him for it, saying, oh, so because of that I have worth? They're trying to do something, and I'm not judging the first film of this franchise too harshly. Because as far as first movies go, this is up there. It's not necessarily the strongest movie in the MCU lineup, but this movie does keep me entertained even when it gets too long. And it keeps me on my toes. We saw a major kerfuffle on Peter's first patrol where trying to break up an ATM heist destroys his neighborhood bodega. And then immediately after that, he accidentally reveals his secret to Ned. That's two major things to happen within the first 25 minutes of the film. And it smartly is that scene from the trailers where he's fighting the guys in the Avengers masks. So it utilizes things we were expecting to be in the movie, helps make the setup work, keeps the movie moving at a good pace, and reminds us one more time, this is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we're going to use that iconography as much as we can. I also liked having Ned find out quickly. It's always important to have a character have someone they can turn to. I agree, and especially for an original character. I love Ned a lot. I just wanted to say it's funny you pointed out iconography happening early on in the film because both body shots of Tom Holland that were used in the trailers getting dressed in the alleyway and his suit falling off in front of Ned are also within the first 25 minutes of this film. And we've been talking a lot about trailers ruining things that come later in a movie and how annoying that is. So it's really cool to see so much in the trailer for Homecoming was footage from early on in the film. And speaking of well-used footage, I just need to give uber praise to Chris Evans, the most wonderful guy. And when he appears for one second in Thor The Dark World, everybody accepts that's just the best one second of the film. He appears in Spider-Man Homecoming, an already really good film, and it is still the best part of the movie. Anybody who went through physical education in the Northeast definitely had to do those horrible presidential fitness tests. I don't know if everybody in the country did them. I'd like to think everybody in the country did them, but when I find out was not covered, I just, oh my god. But so Captain America's health and fitness videos are so great. They're so on point, and I think they did a really smart job bringing him into this film series, and I love Hannibal Barres. They're so iconic to us that in our own comic book series, our lead character, Riot, has a very famous sister named Dance Commander who did Dance Your Way Fit videos for the presidential fitness board for the same reason like we remember watching these videos and yeah no i love hannibal barres's line of i'm pretty sure this guy's a war criminal now but whatever because that would also be the reaction of the public school system it would not be worth the money to take these out of schools people would still love captain america even if he is a quote-unquote war criminal right now they wouldn't 
they would make no effort to remove it. I appreciate them putting in the line, though, because otherwise people would have asked and they would have made fun of it. But that is the answer. Who who gives a fuck? He's still Captain America. Just watch the goddamn video. And I also enjoy that that was a great opportunity to get a bunch of the kids in a room together. It really helped express the Flash, Ned, Peter, Liz, like everybody, the way the teens come together, it really helped frame that for me. And a lot of high school things tend to make gym class look a lot more extreme or dramatic than it was. This was a lot better representation of it. Liz having her court with all of her girls and little gay boys, you know, some people taking gym too seriously, everybody mostly loafing off. Like, it was a good representation. I love the way that high school is represented in this film franchise. And I love Ned blurting out that Peter knows Spider-Man. I, you know, it's, they keep pulling twists that I feel like I should have seen coming, but then didn't because that is such a classic high school movie hijinks thing that's such a hannah montana thing lily would have done that to miley i think she did at one point it is an unbelievable way to keep the movie light and fun because it's not painful you're not like oh god stop it's just like oh ned why'd you do it ned because at the end of the day yes he is spider-man at the end of the day we know that this is going to be a franchise and he's going to end up being this hero so there can't be anything too high stakes that's going to happen here it's just how is this going to go poorly or well and ultimately i think they managed to balance the pain discomfort and shame factor with so much heart and humor and light and life and it does stay upbeat i also just want to throw out there that i love how many awesome cameos they got in this movie including don glover who i think was at one point the internet's primary choice to voice miles morales in a cartoon i think some people also still wanted him as live action which when i look at the ages on toby Maguire and andrew garfield yeah now i don't think it's unrealistic seeing what they were but i still prefer that they skewed younger so we could have more of the teen peter parker i also accidentally skipped earlier we had a really early stamio again this time he was one of the people in peter's neighborhood yelling out the window when peter was trying to stop a carjacker who was just breaking into his own car which again moments like that they really do a great job of showing peter as a bumbling hero all of the heroes fuck up at different points, but they're grown-ups, and a lot of them have experience. They're either soldiers, or they are gods, so we don't really think much about when they bumble. Here, it's a kid, you know, and it's not a Billy Batson kid. He's an important element to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Part of what made Marvel Comics work and made them stand out was that they told stories that you felt like you could imagine yourself in. Whether you wanted to be Johnny Storm, or you wanted to be Peter Parker, or hell, you wanted to be one of the strangest teens alive. You had something you could connect with that you wanted from life that these stories gave you. Remembering how to make that joyful was an important part of this movie. I agree, and I think a lot of the choices that they made in terms of moving away from skyscrapers and city imagery to keep this film franchise separated from the two that came before it really helped the universality as well. They, you know, like I said, they, they did it because they didn't want it to be the same exact as the Tobey Maguire or the Andrew Garfield films. But I think having Peter swinging around the suburbs and going to Coney Island and his final confrontation with the Vulture, it made it a little bit more accessible to a wider range of people. And the accessibility is one of the things that 
I feel maybe the Andrew Garfield movies lacked. There was sort of a look how smart we are to those movies. This movie's not trying to be smart. This movie's trying to give you a good time. And I like everything we're pointing out because it's one of the things that makes this movie fun when he unlocks the Iron Drone. That's such a great touch. He's just like, look at this magical thing I can do now. And he's excited and we're excited with him. And I think the suit was a really excellent choice for this film. I think having Iron Man be his backer, that's something that really helped a lot, a lot that the first two franchises didn't have going for them and couldn't have. Because the suit is almost a character in this film, the way the magic carpet is in the Aladdin franchise. The little things he discovers about it here and there, whereas previously it was just spandex. We were going to have to deal with the possibility of this just being a spandex suit that little Tom Holland made himself, like, that concept had gotten stale by this point, especially with how bedazzled Andrew Garfield had looked. They did manage to even give us bits of that in Civil War, where they had Peter have his homemade gauntlets, and in this movie, he still has his own pieces. He has his alternate costumes he has to wear when later on he temporarily is despidered by Tony. And It's just a great introduction for Peter Parker into what superhero movies have become, considering the last attempt to do so. I did not like the moment when Peter is running through the neighborhood and copies a moment from Ferris Bueller's Day Off where he runs through a house and says smells really good and then runs past someone literally watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off and says that's a great movie. That made it unbelievably less funny to me. You already made the reference. Why are you like smacking me in the head with it? But it's fine. It was ultimately a cute sequence. We get Peter then being saved by the Iron Drone and that's a really fun moment. I noticed that Peter's sitting on a jungle gym while talking to the Iron Drone, and I wrote it down as he's sitting on a jungle gym telling his dad about his day at school. Like, it was a really great choice for the framing of that scene, and there are so many little bits here and there that aren't exactly pointed to, but they make it so clear how much Tony cares. He mentions, like, the lady who bought you the churro. He's listening to Peter's voicemails, even though neither of them is saying that he is listening to Peter's voicemails. And it's stuff like that that makes it frustrating that Peter takes matters into his own hands later. Tony could be more communicative, but at the same time, if you're paying attention, you could tell he's paying attention to you. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. But something we haven't been paying attention to is the time. It's unbelievable that this movie is so jam-packed and there's so much to talk about. So we're going to leave the other half of Spider-Man for our next episode. Until then, Kevin, where can everybody find you online? Instagram and Twitter at Kevorelly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. Don't forget to check out our awesome webcomic, Kid Riot, Riot Squad, and Capes and Boots over at KidRiotComics.com, where you can find inclusivity and diversity in your superhero stories. You can also check me out on X's for Podcast, where Kevo, our boyfriend Jonah, and our best friend Kyle all take a look at the uncanny X-Men, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one. I'm also on Now and Again with my childhood best friend, Chris, where we talk about the Now That's What I Call Music pop series in order. While you're at it, why don't you check out the Patreon for this awesome network, throw a couple of dollars their way, and help shape the shows to come. And if you want to take a look at pictures of me, you can check me out on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, so until we swing back in, we'll see ya. You get one thwip now, you'll get the next one next time.